Introducing the new City Life Church app. The City Life app enables you to listen to messages from Sundays, browse and keep up with connect groups, stay up to date with church life through our blog section, and much more. Download the City Life app today. Welcome to the City Life podcast. We are all about making Jesus known. We pray that these messages will help equip you to become a follower of Jesus who is empowered to influence and shape culture. Enjoy the message. But if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, I would love it if you'd open them up to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This is the easiest scripture you will ever have to find because it's the very first book, very first verse, very first words in the Bible. Hey, when I was a kid, I clearly recall watching a television show um, that was one on one of our three television channels. Like when I was a kid, like we had three to choose from, and, and that was it. That was it. It was way back then. But it, and it was a discussion uh, a, that was rooted in science that allegedly disproved the vi- the Bible. And I'd seen the previews on it. And of course, back then, if you didn't catch it on TV, you were never going to see it the rest of your life. So so I I. My parents still don't know this, but I snuck and watched it, all right? I did. Yeah, you have to understand, my dad was a pastor, and we were a solid Christian family, but I was really intrigued. And, you know, I guess it was sin to disobey my parents and all of that, but I just couldn't resist. It's like, I don't care. I could just ask God to forgive me after I watched the show and whatever. And, and, but, and why? It's because I just really, really loved, and I still do love, science and, and, and history, so I remember so clearly going downstairs that evening and, and uh, we had this black and white TV and, and, and the only way to turn the channels were with pliers because someone broke the little, the little channel turner thing on. Yeah, yeah, we didn't have remotes. The remote was the pliers and I could reach up that click, click, you know, and, and, and turn the channel. And, and so, so I went down there to do it and no one was out there. I, I turned it up just loud enough and it would crackle, turning the little thing up and just loud enough so I could hear it and I was positioned close enough to the television with my pliers in my hands in case I needed to turn the channel really quick in case I heard somebody coming. Uh, you, know, you, you know, it's just like that feeling, I, you know, I, I know I'm doing this wrong, but I can't help it, I'm just going to do it anyway. I kind of had that feeling when I was driving in this morning, except I didn't think I did anything wrong, but a policeman started following me right after I left my house, followed me all the way here to the church. I mean, he's just all the way, and the whole way I was going, did I do something wrong? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then, you know, I park, and I just keep going. Like, well, that was weird, but, but you, you know the feeling. So I was there with that same feeling, and, except I was doing evil, you know, very, very evil watching that show. Uh, but that, that, that TV show shook my faith. It said that the Bible couldn't be true because there was no archaeological evidence that ancient Israel's King David existed. Uh, they said that only the Bible talks about King David. They said there were no inscriptions, there were no archaeological digs, there were no other documents outside of the Bible. And in fact, scientists really throughout the, uh, throughout the 1900s referred to this as, as one of the major solid proofs that the scriptures were a myth because evidence was missing. So, I mean, does this mean that Christians should stop believing in David? Uh, Does this mean that we should go ahead and reject the scriptures? And the seeds of skepticism were sown in my heart. Let's be honest with you, it was there. 
Uh, a few years later, I was in junior high. I was at Vernon Junior High in Harlingen, Texas. And, and, and I know none of you probably went to Vernon Junior High. If you did, then we've got a lot of catching up to do. But, but uh, Vernon Junior High in Harlingen. Harlingen is down the Rio Grande Valley. It's like we're close to South Padre Island. That's where I would go and spend the weekends with God on the beach. And just, oh, yes, you know, it was a hard life. It's a hard life living out near the beach, especially when you're in high school. It was hard. I survived, though, thank God. But, uh, but I, read, I remember I was in the library, and I read this periodical, and it caught my eye because it was talking about the empty tomb, and it says, is it, is it real? And, and so the, the, the article said that really the empty tomb of Jesus was a fable. The reason they said that is because there was no archaeological evidence. And in fact, the archaeological evidence that was there dates the tomb at around 1000 A.D. And uh, evidence of a Roman-era tomb was simply missing. And so the article concluded that the empty tomb was an elaborate hoax. And I mean, how can a foolish, how can a Christian really be so foolish as to believe in something that's not supported by science. Uh, if there's no evidence, how can you believe in it? I mean, does this mean that the Christian should stop believing in the empty tomb? And so more seeds of skepticism were sown, just be honest. I was questioning and I was confused because I would hear one thing at church, I'd hear something different at school and, uh, and on television. And, and so I talked to my dad about these things and dad's a theologian, so I, I go to him and because I, 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 I just want to understand. Just like we all do. I just want to understand. And my dad said, listen, Timmy. Now, now, he called me Timmy. You cannot call me Timmy. Do you guys understand that? Don't, don't even think about it. That would be bad. I drew a line in the sand at a certain age. Like, Nobody's going to call me Timmy. Bad things would happen to them at a certain point. You don't want to make me sin again. All right, but, but anyway. Um, but dad said, hey, Timmy, we don't wait for scientific evidence to believe. Well, he explained it to me. He said, well, we're, we're Christians, so we choose to believe the Scriptures by faith. And he said, Christians choose to believe there is a King David by faith because we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And Christians believe in Jesus' empty tomb by faith because the Scriptures are inspired by God. In fact, Dad, Dad explained, he said, that's the whole reason why we have this thing, and we call it faith you have to have faith. And so that was an answer that actually made sense. That was the first answer that actually kind of begun to make some sense. Um, and that, that was really at the time I created my first functional definition of faith. I really didn't even have a definition until that point, and it wasn't redefined until I got to college and learned what the real definition was. But, uh, but my functional definition of faith was, was made up at this time, and it, it's this, is we don't, need to, we don't need evidence before we believe. Because Faith means that we believe before we see. Now, fast forward a few years later, 1993 rolls around and big discovery happened. Archaeologists dug up the first non-Bible reference to King David of ancient Israel and more has continued to be found. So immediately that scientific argument regarding King David being fiction it just disintegrated. The, all the books and the, the commentaries and, and the, the shows that disproved Christianity on that basis are now all of a sudden worthless. <laughs> and then strangely enough, no joke, I mean, this is crazy, you can look it up yourself, just last week, November 28th, I saw this, National Geographic released a report that the tomb of Jesus 
most certainly does date to the Roman era because they've opened it back up and their archaeological evidence has been uncovered at the site. And so another one of those arguments that Christianity is wrong, the Bible is a myth, it was disproved. Now you can't use that one anymore. So, so here's the question I have to ask. This is, this is important. Must we disbelieve until scientific evidence is presented? I mean, now you can guess my answer is no, and I'm glad I didn't disbelieve until scientific evidence was there because that's actually the opposite of faith, as my dad taught me. But at the same time, I'll tell you guys, I have a deep respect for history, for archaeology, uh, science, for literature. I mean, these studies have revolutionized our world. But the fact that Christians have faith before evidence is presented is also core to my belief system and our belief system. So, in my opinion, science and scriptures, they're really not at odds with each other. And I know that everyone's not going to agree on that. And, and, uh, and really, a lot of this, this uh, has come about through some best-selling books. Uh, authors uh, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris, and, and they have written plenty on this subject. And they, they take a firm position that science has made belief in God unnecessary and obsolete. Really, there, there's one quote that, that's out there quite a bit. It's from 1986. Uh, uh, Dawkins made this statement. He said, although atheism might have been logically tenable before Darwin, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Uh, he also wrote another book later on called The God Delusion. And in The God Delusion, he argues that it's impossible to be an intelligent scientific thinker and hold religious beliefs. He says you have to choose one or the other. His premise is this, is that the more intelligent and rational and scientifically minded you are, the less you will be able to believe in God. So is Dawkins correct? I mean, let's ask that question. Must we choose between thinking scientifically and belief in God? I mean, has science essentially disproved faith? Now, that's my introduction. Posed a lot of questions. I just want to tell you... Um, like any message that I would share on a topic of this nature, I, I will let you know right up front, there is no way possible that I can present every objection from some scientists uh, regarding the scriptures or Christianity, and nor do I uh, purport to be some type of a scientist. I'm not. I'm a theologian, and I'm passionate about that. I love to study the scriptures, and I love to study God and understand how, how God works and how the scriptures work. So what I've done is I, I've decided I'm, I want to take the two biggest scientific conflicts that's talked about, that's out there, that arise from the scientific community regarding Christian faith. And let's talk about those two. And the two are creation and miracles. So first of all, I want us to take a very objective look at creation. Now, there are two extreme positions that have been put forth that are very prevalent in the culture. And these two extreme positions are this, is that the world is 4.5 billion years old. Many scientists say that. And others, uh, primarily interpreters of the Bible, will say the earth is 6,000 years old. 
Now, I'll come right up here and say, honestly, I don't know the answer to that. And that's, I'm not trying to get an easy way out on this. I'm just saying I don't know. Uh, I, I know the scriptures, though. And as a theologian, neither extreme puts my faith at risk because I know the scriptures. And, I, and I'll tell you why. You're going to need to follow me on this, okay? This is a thinking message. Um, if you read the first two chapters of the Bible, you're going to notice what some people call uh, or refer to it as two differing accounts of the creation story. And I'm not afraid to point that out. It's okay. I want to point that out and, and present that to you because it's real. I, I noticed it as a kid. I was mesmerized with the creation story. In fact, I had these records I would listen to all the time that had the creation story on it, and I had it memorized, and, and, and I would stand in front of church, and, and I would quote them to the, to the church. And well, I remember one time I would do it. My dad had, I remember clearly my dad made, made me get off the platform, and, and I, was, I was like, five or six years old, and I got in such trouble because dad said, okay, you got to stop now. I didn't want to stop because he had to preach, and I, and I got in trouble because I did this, dad, like, don't shake dad. I don't know why I did that, dad, but, but uh, I, I was, I loved the creation story, but I also picked it up rather early, and I think that's just because I love the scripture so much, is that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are very different in their presentation of the creation. I began to take a closer uh, look at this during my ministerial studies in college. Now, the author of Genesis is Moses. So let's, let's understand this. He wrote Genesis to a particular audience who couldn't read and who did not have books, okay? Instead, during that time, what they did is they listened to oral recitation of the scriptures and they would also memorize certain portions that were written in poetry or that could be sung or chanted. Uh, and, and the Old Testament was written with this in mind. In fact, you know how you can get a song in your mind? You can remember that song for years and years and years and years. It's the same thing. They knew that you, know, you, you put something to a song, you can sing it, you're going to memorize it. So uh, that was the writing of the Old Testament. So understanding this, the book of Genesis opens... With these words, Genesis 1.1. Look at it in your Bible. I want you to make sure I'm not telling you a lie here. And I do, just, just for the record, I, uh, I typically use the New International Version, NIV, as what we put on the screens of what I read from, unless I mark it otherwise. So everything today is NIV. It's, and it says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we need to stop right there. Okay? We can't rush over this. Now, I'm going to talk to you about literature here for just a second because this is a huge, massive, sweeping statement, and it covers a lot of ground, which has everything to do with what we're talking about today. Now, the time is the beginning, whenever that was. The central character is God. He is doing something. The action he is doing is creating. And what he is actually creating is the heavens and the earth. God was creating everything that we see and experience with, with our, with our uh, senses. And it all happened in the beginning. Now, I believe that. I believe that to be literal fact. Now, as you follow along, though, and I'm not going to take you through it, I'm not going to read it all to you because I know you can do this on your own. As you begin moving into the next verse, you, you'll, you'll notice that there's this literary style that begins to, uh, be, begins to come about. You'll see something unique. Really what you'll see from here all the way to chapter 2, uh, verse 3, is that Moses' writing style is marked here by two things, rhythm and repetition. Rhythm, repetition, rhythm, repetition. 
Same stuff we hear when there's music, all right? And words are repeated over and over and over and over. As, as someone who interprets scriptures, you always look for repetition of words because you, you're, you're, your clues to what's being said is found there. And you'll find this all through there. God created, God said, God saw, God made, God blessed. God created, God said, God saw, God made, God blessed. Rhythm, repetition, rhythm, repetition. God is the center of it all. So chapter one of the Bible, book of Genesis, has all of the earmarks of highly sensory Hebrew poetry that would be put to music and would be sung. Now, when you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and don't ever let chapter divisions or verse divisions, uh, you know, think, well, that's something different because, because the reality is those were, were put in about a thousand years ago, okay? They were added in there so we could find stuff easier. So they, they really don't have to obey what those divisions say. But when you get to chapter 2, verse 4, there is this dramatic shift in everything. And that's what I'm calling your attention to. Because in 2, verse 4, Moses says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, now, wait a minute here. This is an introduction now to a whole new section. But it features four important words that are not found in the introduction of the other section. And it says, this is the account. Really important words. This is the story. N now what's happening here is there's a shifting into a historical narrative that begins in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4. The literary style dramatically shifts because, but, but it's still written by the same author. It's one continuing thought, but it's, a, but, but it's a different style. See, in Genesis chapter 1, natural order really doesn't even mean anything. I mean, you see the light before the sun is created. Uh, in, in Genesis chapter 2, though, we see a very clear succession of natural order. Therefore, it seems clear to me as a theologian that the author's primary intent in Genesis chapter 1 is to show this, is that in the beginning, God created. Now, the question of how God did it uh, which the big question is, was it in seven 24-hour days or was it over millions of years representing seven epochs? That's not even the point. That's not what the author was intending. See, and, and once we understand this, any scientific theory is no longer contradictory to the Bible because the point of Genesis 1 is that an all-powerful, personal God created and sustains all things. Now, unfortunately today, there are people who, are, who, are, who have made positions on both sides of this issue. And they engage in what both theologians and uh, scientists call the absolute warfare of science and scriptures. That's what, it, that's what it's actually called. You can look this up. You can Google all this stuff. I don't care. But this is where some Christians believe that Genesis 1 teaches that God created all life forms in a period of six 24-hour days that happened 6,000 years ago. Now, did it happen that way? Possibly. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I believe God can do anything. And I also hold a very, very high view of Scripture. But a dogmatic insistence that that's the case for a theologian, that actually flies in the face of the rest of the Scripture as you read the rest of the Bible. Therefore, personally, I struggle with that interpretation as a theologian not even considering scientific reasoning okay do you do, scientific reading is, is off the, the the table right now as a theologian 
I struggle with that because it doesn't match up with the rest of Scripture. See, Christians who accept the Bible's authority, like I do and, and most, most believers do, we agree that the primary goal when you're going to study the Scriptures is to discover what the author's original meaning and intent was that he sought to communicate to his audience. This always means that you interpret the text according to the literary genre. And, and that's the way we have to do it. Everyone believes this who believes, in the, who believes in the authority of the scriptures. For example, when a Christian reads Psalms, we read it as poetry, right? I mean, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall, shall want. I don't see you as, as, a, as a sheep walking around with, with the Lord behind you. You know, that, that's poetry. But when you read the gospel according to Luke, which claims to be an eyewitness account, then you, you read that as history. Now, any reader can see that a historical narrative should be read as history, and poetic imagery should be read as metaphorical. So I, I, I personally take the view that Genesis chapter 1 and 2 relate to each other like that, the same way that Judges chapter 4 and 5 relate to one another, also Exodus chapters 14 and 15 do, and you can study those on your own. But in each one of these couplets, one chapter describes an account, clear word, important, an account of a historical event. And then the other chapter is a song or a poem about the theological meaning and impact of the event. For example, if you read Joshua chapter 4, it's very obvious that you're reading about a historical account of a battle. But then when you move, excuse me, Judges chapter 4, when you, then you move to Judges chapter 5, you're going to notice that the entire literary structure shifts. Now, it's the same event, and it starts at the same place, but it sounds completely different, and it's poetic, and it's metaphorical. I mean, it's, it's you know, Deborah in that, is that she's not singing about the stars in heaven literally coming down to fight for the Israelites. We understand it's metaphor. And I believe that Genesis chapter 1 has those same earmarks of poetry, and it's therefore a song about the wonder and the meaning of God's creation. Genesis chapter 2 is a historical account, just like it says, starting in verse 4, of how it actually happened. Now, I know this. There are always going to be debates on these issues regarding how to interpret these passages, including Genesis chapter 1. I know that. But it is false logic to argue that if one part of Scripture can be taken metaphorically, then none of the Bible can be taken literally. I mean, the, the reason I say that is because that's not true of any human communication. None. You know? So when we read Genesis chapter 1 as a poetic song about the majesty of creator God, just like we read all other Bible poetry, the story of creation and the subsequent disagreement about the age of the earth, it, it, it doesn't even clash in any way. So why is there all this conflict between science and religion? Let's let think about it. Well, the truth is, is if you follow history, you'll discover that the conflict actually originated about 120 years ago in America's colleges and university. There really wasn't an issue until that point. It was huge conflict. Now, you can research this on your own, but 
anyone can, can check out that, uh, that there was a secularization of America's colleges and universities, all the higher learning institutions that happened around this time. And it is, in fact, very well documented in an important and influential book that is uh, edited by Christian Smith. Now, in this book, Smith argues that what I called, or what we call, the absolute warfare model of relationship uh, of the relationship of science and religion, he says that that was actually intentional. It was intentionally, it was really a strategy to undermine church control of universities. Historically, that's what happened. See, it was a deliberate exaggeration that was used by both scientists and by educational leaders at the end of the 19th century. And it was done so to undermine the control of the church of those institutions because they wanted to increase their own cultural power and it worked you know it was a battle and they won it so but they created this this model in order to make it happen so the absolute warfare model of science and reason it was the product not so much about some kind of an intellectual necessity but it was a cultural strategy for control so understand its roots then we can begin to understand its outflying in fact many scientists see no incompatibility between faith in god and their work there have been two famous studies that happened in the last century, one in 1916 and one in 1997. The uh, American psychologist James Luba, he conducted a 1916 survey of scientists and he asked them if they believe in a God who actively communicates with humanity at least through prayer. 40% said yes, 40% said no, 20% said they were undecided. Now, fast forward to 1997. Edward Larson, Larry Witham, they repeated this survey with the very same questions to the scientists. And all this is uh, recorded in the, uh, in the scientific journal called Nature. And they announced that they had found that the numbers had not changed in 80 years. So even though the absolute model of, of warfare between science and religion still had a popular following on both sides where people were angrily duking it out and digging their heels in the ground, we can step back and say, hey, we can be and should be free to object to the notion that you have to choose between one of the two extremes if you want to be a Christian. You don't have to say that if I'm going to be a Christian, it's going to be in conflict with science. In my opinion, to be a Christian does not mean that you're in conflict with science. But also, science doesn't have everything figured out because they make new discoveries all the time. That's just the way it works. Hey, the majority of scientists today, do you know they consider themselves to be deeply religious or at least moderately religious? The majority. And those numbers have been increasing in recent years. And that's also seen in America's colleges and universities. Those numbers are increasing in the, in de the uh, recent decades. There is no necessary disjunction between science and devout faith. So I want to give you a, another one, which is the issue of miracles. And it's the question of, aren't miracles scientifically impossible? Again, I need for you to think with me on this one, because, first of all, the New Testament is full of miracles that Jesus did. Uh, but, but scientific mistrust of the Bible, it began with this, uh, this Enlightenment belief that miracles cannot be reconciled with a modern rational view 
of the world. So armed with this, uh, this presupposition, scholars began turning to the Bible and saying, the Bible can't be reliable because it contains descriptions of miracles. That's another big argument that's out there. The premise behind this claim is this. Follow carefully. Science has proven, scientists will say, they have proven through science that there is no such thing as miracles. Now, but when you really think about that statement, embedded in that statement is a massive leap of faith. <laughs> it's, it's one thing to say, you know what, the way science really works, it's one thing to say that science is only equipped to test for natural causes and it cannot speak for others, but it's quite another to say that science proves no other causes could possibly exist. See, when, when, when you study a phenomenon, a scientist always has to assume there is a natural cause. You learned that. That's because only natural causes, natural causes, they're the only kind that the scientific method can address. There is no experiment that can prove the supernatural can cause a natural phenomenon to occur. So science, by its very nature, it can't discern nor can it test for supernatural causes. So therefore, many scientists take what I call a huge leap of faith and insist then that the causes don't exist if they can't be tested. There's this uh, philosopher, Alvin Plantinga, and he, he asserts this. As a, I, I, I like this writing because this, this makes a lot of sense. He says, some scientific writers suggest that the very practice of science requires that one reject the idea of God raising from the dead. He says, this argument is like the drunk who insisted on looking for his lost car keys only under the street light on the grounds that the light is better there. In fact, it would go the drunk one better. It would insist that because the keys would be hard to find in the dark, then they must be under the light. So if you can't see it and you can't test for it, then it doesn't exist. You see, that actually takes a lot of faith. Yet faith is what some say cannot be used because they've disproved it through this theory, which doesn't even fit into scientific theory. Now, yeah, and I, and I also want to make this clear, guys. I in no way want to be hard on people who struggle with the idea of God's intervention and natural order because miracles by their very nature are difficult to believe. I believe them, but not everyone does. They're hard to believe. In fact, do you know that in our own Bible, the scriptures that I hold so dear, I hold high esteem, it agrees with that? In Matthew chapter number 28, after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his own disciples had come to meet him on this mountainside in Galilee. And, and I, I want you to see what happened here. Let's read it carefully through the filter of a theologian. It says, the 11 disciples, we know it's 11 because one has, uh, has, um, has hanged himself, all right? The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some, what? Doubted. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait a minute. Think about this. 
This is a remarkable admission from an author of an early Christian document telling us that some of the closest followers of Jesus and the original founders of Christianity couldn't even believe in the miracle of the resurrection. And even though they were looking straight at Jesus with their own eyes and touching him with their own hands, and they had spent two years with him traveling the countryside. There's no other reason for this to be in the account unless it really, really, truly happened. If you want to be the validity of the scriptures, look at that. Why would anyone write something like that? Though some of us doubted <laughs> if you're trying to convince the world of a hoax. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know? Get this. Some of Jesus' disciples doubted the miracle. And when I look at this, I can't help but believe that there's a lot woven into this. I, I think part of this is it's a warning that we modern people, advanced, scientific people, uh, that we are not the only ones that struggle with the miraculous, thinking that somehow these ancient, primitive people never struggled with it because they were just doofuses, you know? <laughs> you like that word, don't you? Yes, I've heard it whispered about 50 times over here, all right? The disciples responded like any group of modern people would. They did. Some believed their eyes, some didn't. And again, I look at the scripture and I, I think, you know, there's, there's another truth that I see coming out of this is, is that it's an encouragement, I think, for all of us to be patient with each other. Because the other side of this story is that every one of those disciples ended up as great leaders in the church. And they established Christianity around the world, even though some of them had trouble, more trouble believing than others did. But I'd say probably the most instructive thing about this passage is really what it says about the purpose of miracles. And the purpose of miracles is really for the purpose of worship, awe, and wonder of God, because they see the miracle of Jesus and they worship him. I mean, Jesus didn't do miracles to be magic tricks. He, he wasn't trying to impress his followers or his co-workers. Like, hey, look at this. Yeah, hey, see that camel over there? I want to show you something really cool. This is called the camel flattening act. Like, camel flatten. All of a sudden, the humps disappear. <laughs> Ooh, oh, cool, Jesus. I mean, Jesus, Jesus didn't go, hey, you want to watch that tree over there? Watch. All of a sudden, I'm going to make it burst into flame. Oh, it's burning. Now watch me freeze it. <laughs> It freezes off. Whoa, Jesus, good job, good job. No, he didn't do magic tricks. When I was a kid, I got myself a little magic set, and I wanted it for Christmas. I got it, I loved it, but then I realized there was no magic to it. Of course, it was just all sleight of hand. But Jesus used his miraculous power to do something totally different. Think about it. He used miracles to heal the sick, um, to drive out dark, tormenting, demonic spirits from people, to feed the hungry, to raise the dead. Why? I mean, we modern people think of miracles as, as some type of like a suspension of the natural order, but Jesus used miracles for the purpose of God's restoration. It's a purpose of the restoration of God's natural order because God did not originally design and make this world to have disease and hunger and death and demonic oppression in it. Jesus came to redeem what was wrong and he heals the world 
where it is broken. That's what Jesus does. And that's what he empowers us to do in his name. Now, his miracles are an example, really, of what he desires us to do with his power when we make Jesus known and we bring healing wherever we are. Miracles, they're, they're, they're an amazing foretaste of this promise in our heart that the world we all desire and crave is coming and that the best really is yet to come. So, so Tim, me, I, I, I take the position to not fuel the debate following the absolute warfare model of science and religion. It's just, we don't need to. Because in reality, that only becomes a distraction from what's most important. Paul, he was a great Christian leader. He's the best, biggest church planter in the Bible. And he's writing to one of the churches he planted. He's writing to the pastor, Pastor Timothy. He's a pastor of a, that church. And, and he's giving him some instruction about some similar stuff that was happening in his church. And, and Paul says this in, in 1 Timothy 1.3. He says, command certain people not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of the command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. Like, ouch. Ouch. Meaningless talk, my friend, is a waste. And for me, I mean, I, just, I, I take the scripture so serious that I look at that and I just have to say, Promoting controversial speculations is a distraction from the truth, and I can't be a part of it with a good heart. Um, instead, our focus has to be on advancing God's work, which is by faith. Not trying to prove one perspective over another, because all we end up with is bloody noses. And we here at City Life, we have made this choice early on that we chose to focus on what we are for rather than on what we are against. And we are for the message of Jesus, believing in him and receiving what Jesus did for us by faith. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved you, me, the world, that he gave his one and only son, Jesus. Whoever believes in him, believes in him, believes in him, will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe, well, they're condemned already because they haven't believed in the name of God's one and only son. So this is important because it all comes down to believing in Jesus. Jesus said, He's come so that you will not perish. Jesus came so that you will have life eternal. Jesus did not come to condemn people. So many people say that about Christianity, that Christians condemn or Christianity condemns. No, it doesn't. We can't. That's not possible. Anyone who tries to do this is outside the will of God. But we can escape the condemnation that comes from sin through belief in Jesus. So the big question is, do you believe? Not what end of the spectrum are you on, just do you believe? Because really, it, it takes more faith to believe in nothing to believe than it does to believe in Jesus. Maybe you believe your university professor, what they told you, or possibly you believe what was written on a blog. And, but I'm just saying, don't let the culture determine your belief for you. Put your faith in the person of Jesus. Parents, 
What you believe has greater impact on your child's life than anything else. Do you realize that? So, so be determined to believe and live out what you believe. Shallow belief, shallow conviction, it's only going to cause you to float around your life aimless and, and the years are wasting away. And that has no way to live. The way to live is this. Look at the scripture one last time. John 3, 16, 17, and 18. For God so loved, look at these words, so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And God did not send Jesus into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That means that sin has condemned you. Don't let that happen. Receive the freedom and the life in Jesus. Do you believe? I'd like there to be no movement at this time. And I'm going to ask everyone in this room just to stay right where you are. Just close your eyes. And for a moment, I want you to focus internally. Maybe you're here today and you've never surrendered your life completely to Jesus. Maybe you've drifted from your relationship with God. And, and if you want to know this Jesus that I talk about, you want a new beginning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond by lifting your hand. Because faith is when we respond outwardly to what is happening inwardly. And Jesus loves you more than you can imagine, and he died for you so that you can have a life and everything changes today. If you'd like to be included in this closing prayer and surrender your life completely to Jesus, when I count to three, lift your hand. One, two, three. Lift your hand for me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Who else? You put your hands down. Who else? Thank you. I want to ask, I want like everyone to stand with me, please. I want, if you lift your hand, I want you along with the entire congregation of believers to stand with me, will you please? Can we pray? I want us to pray together. And if you lifted your hand, I want you to believe these words and pray these words along with everyone else. Come on, let's pray these words. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for my sin. I believe you're the Son of God. Please forgive my sin. Today I give up my past and I embrace the future that you have for me. Thank you for giving me new life. In Jesus' name, amen. City Life is able to continue making Jesus known through the consistent investments of many. And if you would like to invest financially into the vision, you can do so at citylifefw.org. Simply select the giving option that works best for you. Thank you for listening to this week's message from City Life Church. You can stay connected through Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we look forward to seeing you on Sunday.